Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. This file is being recorded for the August 2023 edition of Socialism for All, and it's an audiobook and discussion of Infrastructures of Community, written by a research team at the UCLA Luskin Institute on Inequality and Democracy 2022. If you like this video, please click like and subscribe and consider supporting on Patreon at patreon.com slash socialism for all. There's a link to Patreon in the video description. So this piece is included in the Homeless Industrial Complex Syllabus playlist that we have going at Socialism for All. The Homeless Industrial Complex Syllabus is a collection of works put together by housing and homelessness activists in order to spotlight the systematic nature of the homelessness crisis in the United States and its links to the systemic profit motive system that we have under capitalism. Homelessness is not a personal failing. It is the result of societal policy. First of all, a lack of affordable housing, and then tied in with policies that we've seen over the last few decades in what we call the neoliberal era since about the late 70s, early 80s, of deregulation, privatization, cutting of social services, moving of jobs overseas, and other structural level conditions within society. This particular piece is chapter five from a larger collection called Displacement, the fight for housing and community after Echo Park Lake. This reading follows a previous short one called Dear Mitch, Don't Evict Us, which is an open letter from the residents of Echo Park Lake, a small, well-managed, peaceful tent settlement within Los Angeles's Echo Park Lake. So let's begin Infrastructures of Community. We keep us safe. Echo Park Lake functioned as a refuge, a safe haven where the unhoused could find relative safety and peace compared to sleeping on the sidewalk. Those who stayed at the park, even those who were not enmeshed in the organized community, described the safety of Echo Park compared to life on the street. Kyle Stewart, eager for a Project Room Key spot but unable to obtain one due to lack of ID, described the park as, quote, a lot more safe, and his current spot outside, one that is now a Section 41.18 zone. Quote, it was definitely safer at the park, and now it's like, I see different faces every day, and oh man, I can't tell you how many times I've been robbed, lost my stuff. Unquote. The personal familiarity and community bonds of the park meant that residents could relax knowing their personhood and personal property were not under constant threat. Jesse Adams, similarly back on the street after eviction from Echo Park Lake, explained that, quote, I hardly ever leave my tent anymore. I will be in there for literally five or six days with a padlock on the door, unquote, for fear that it will be invaded, occupied, trashed, or stolen altogether. Adams had lived at the park for a long time and had difficult experiences there due to criminalization and the condition of life outside. Nevertheless, his experience back on the street stood in marked contrast to Echo Park, where one could leave one's tent and move around in the world knowing that it would still be there later. This enabled residents to do more than worry about survival, which was exactly the case for Trevor Ricci. He pursued employment, saved up, and sought housing for his spouse and children. He could do this because, put simply, quote, I had a space for my family to be safe. The importance of safety at Echo Park Lake was particularly the case for women seeking refuge from domestic violence. Mina Sullivan, who became homeless after fleeing intimate partner abuse, described the park, quote, there were lots of good people in that community, so if anything happened, they would stop it. They would help you. Or, you know, they check that women are safe. 
unquote. At Echo Park Lake, the eyes and ears of the collective meant that there was always someone looking out. This experience of the park was very different from the experience of staying in shelters, even those specifically designed for people escaping from domestic violence. As Elena Morgan put it, quote, I prefer outside over shelter just because even being outside you're more protected. You can protect yourself. You can run away, unquote. Sullivan elaborated, quote, In the domestic violence shelter, I was treated like a prisoner, and I was cheated. Living in a park was actually a thousand times better than being in a shelter. Being in a shelter is horrible. It's too abusive, unquote. Shelters specifically designed for women escaping violence replicated the same confinement, punishing treatment, and fear that all characterize an abusive relationship, conditions that women like Sullivan and Morgan were fleeing in the first place. After navigating the patriarchal structure of the shelter system, the park was an enormous reprieve. As the experience of domestic violence shelters suggests, the safety that residents felt at Echo Park Lake was very different than what they found in Project Roomkey. Nicole Ward, like many women, had trouble in the past living on the streets. She felt the possibility of danger and assault looming over her every time she went to sleep at night. At Echo Park Lake, she was able to sleep soundly and, quote, felt safe there with the people she knew nearby, unquote. If someone were to try and harm Ward, she knew that her neighbors would protect her. After moving to Project Roomkey, these feelings of safety and security were stripped away. Ward has faced possible eviction multiple times. If she misses curfew by so much as five minutes, she is not allowed back to her room. As a result of these carceral rules, she has spent nights back out on the same street she feared before obtaining shelter, because she had to take her dog out past curfew. The alternative was allowing her dog to relieve himself on the carpet, another violation of Project Roomkey rules. Ward reported having her bike stolen from the front of the hotel. She had locked it at the sidewalk where the security guard is supposed to be standing. This stands as a stark contrast from Ward's feeling of community at Echo Park Lake. Had she asked a neighbor at the park to watch her bike, she could have trusted it to be there upon return. Paid security at Project Roomkey did not keep Ward safe and well, something that her community at Echo Park Lake did as part of life there. The park provided something that temporary carceral shelters or programs never could, a measure of stability. The unpredictability of life for people experiencing homelessness makes meeting basic needs in many cases a day-to-day -day struggle, but the park created a context of trust and predictability that enabled residents to move beyond survival. Tomas Kelly explained it simply, quote, there was trust. Garrett Sanchez explained what it was like to have basic needs met in the community. Quote, no one went hungry. If you had food, you would cook for people. You would go out of your way to be able to take care of others and help them in need. If there is free food around, there is a support system where people will let you know like, hey, there's food over here. It was definitely an experience that I'll never forget and I thoroughly enjoyed, unquote. These networks of community care and mutual aid were transformative, growing a support system that for many was an unfamiliar experience compared to the daily grind of life on the street. And that care took many forms, supply provision, phone charging, and information sharing that ranged from tips on the best spots for setting up a tent to knowledge about civil rights when confronted by police. Scott Merchant described that collective care, quote, when you come together as a community, you're a lot better off and it helps, you know, to be as a team." Unquote. Alone on the sidewalk or in a Project Roomkey hotel, it's difficult to build and maintain that community, but at Echo Park Lake, residents learn the power of a collective to create some level of stability. 
The relative stability of the Echo Park Lake Collective did not mean that there was no conflict, however. Disagreement is a normal part of any human community, and Echo Park Lake was no exception. The key difference is that, as much as possible, conflicts were handled internally with the community, rather than involving police or park rangers. In this way, Echo Park Lake is an example of abolition in practice, demonstrating the possibilities of life without police. This was not simply an idea, but a material necessity due to the city's intentional abandonment of homeless communities in the moments they most need support. Demonstrative of this condition is the preventable death of Andrew Kettle. In June 2020, Linda Kane found him complaining of severe physical distress and called 911. When the paramedics arrived, quote, they were screaming at him and yelling at him and speaking in accusatory tones like, go back to your tent in this 90 to 100 degree weather and sleep off the alcohol, unquote. They left without providing any medical assistance, and after being berated, Kettle followed their suggestion and went back to sleep in his tent. He was found dead in that same tent a few hours later. As Kane described it, quote, they sent him to his deathbed literally, unquote. Later, Kane conferred with other community members and learned from their experiences that alcohol can be deadly in this way, information that paramedics should have known, and probably did, but did not share with Kettle or the rest of the community. Testament to the deep dehumanization of unhoused people by the city of Los Angeles, the paramedics refused to treat or even understand Kettle's condition. Among many other examples of the city's failure to provide basic services to the unhoused, Kettle's death underscores the hostility of city entities toward the park community. Because of this deliberate dehumanization by state power, collective problem-solving, conflict resolution, and emergency response were a necessity for community survival. The Echo Park Lake community developed a set of rules and agreements to govern themselves, and they were straightforward. Don't steal from each other and keep drug use inside tents. Joshua Peterson described the origin of these rules. Quote, it's simple like you would have in any community. You don't steal from friends. You look out and you respect one another. You don't use drugs or illicit activity outside your tent. Keep it in your tent and you can do whatever you want. Unquote. This practical approach to harm reduction made it easier for former drug users to stay sober in the community while also holding space for those who are using. Residents recognized addiction as a disease. As Peterson explained, quote, you can't shun a person for drug use. You can't hate a person for that. You can't say you're weak for that. You say you're human and all that happens. Let's try sobriety next time, unquote. By keeping drug users in the community rather than pushing them out, Echo Park Lake residents were able to support each other and even save each other by using Narcan rather than banishing people to the street or prison, leaving them to die as the city would have done. Peterson also elaborated on the other key community agreement around theft. Quote, if you want to steal, steal from stores. Steal from places that are insured, where you're not hurting anybody. But when you're stealing from someone who's homeless, who's struggling for everything they got every day, that's messed up. Unquote. This moral code recognized class hierarchy and made clear that theft from each other was unacceptable. But if you were in need and the community couldn't provide necessary resources. Stealing from a corporation with ample expendable capital was fair play. Considering the ways in which some stores in the community actively encouraged the criminalization and banishment of the unhoused, particularly gentrifying establishments like Lassen's Natural Foods and Vitamins and others, the rules around theft encouraged class solidarity among residents by aiming fear and frustration at the wealthy rather than those in the same boat of poverty. Inevitably, some residents wouldn't follow these community agreements. A small group of residents regulated the park to ensure that the rules became the norm. 
As Peterson explained of the structure, quote, in a community, you have to have guidelines. And those guidelines are sometimes enforced by the law. You know, it's not the laws of the state, it's the laws of the community, unquote. Peterson himself was one of these regulators who enforced the laws of the community. He characterized his unpaid regulator job as part public relations. He'd go around the park meeting new people and informing them of the rules. Quote, I'm Joshua. I'm doing security here. If you ever have a problem, let me know. If you need help or you need assistance or something, pitching a tent, whatever it is, let me know and we'll take care of it. Unquote. Occasionally, enforcement meant escorting rule breakers or openly hostile people out of the park, which could become physical. Sullivan described her experience with the regulators' patrols, quote, If anything happened, they would stop it. They would help. They would patrol the whole park and make sure there's no people coming into the park to start anything, unquote. Not everyone had the same experience of comfort with these patrols as Sullivan. Some were at odds with this regulation or disagreed with enforcement's style or direction. Regardless, however... That this regulation was largely conducted without police involvement was a victory in and of itself. Without police or other security forces, individuals were left to deal with issues alone or by involving hostile city entities, like park rangers or even paramedics. Conflict resolution can be messy, thankless work, and as Peterson put it, quote, I'm not a cop, I'm doing the dirty work no one wants to do, unquote. Peterson and the regulators were not the only ones supporting this work. Community leaders like Omar Dawson and Veronica Palacios often stepped in to help soothe tensions or smooth over disagreements. Palacios lived in the neighborhood of Echo Park nearly her whole life and maintains deep ties to the community and the neighborhood. When gang activity increased around the park, Palacios communicated with her networks to de-escalate while making sure that the regulators were, quote, reinforcing it the right way. Described by many as the maternal figure of the park, she oversaw the work of rule enforcement and operated as a third party who could verify what happened in any given incident. Quote, if they couldn't fix something with the girls or the guys, they'd come get me. I was like their last resort. But sometimes Jeffrey would be like, I can't deal with that lady. You got to go talk to her, mom. Or sometimes they would try to argue with the guys. So I'd always intercept because they'd start screaming, cussing, acting like they're going to hit him. The regulators, unquote. Palacio's role in the community meant that she had familial relationships with different groups across the park, making it possible for her to facilitate conflict resolution or de-escalate where others could not. This, too, is abolition in practice, ensuring that individuals who wanted to stay and work on improving their behavior could do so. As Peterson put it, everybody can change, and there's nobody that's exempt from change. If you want to do it and you find somebody to support you to do it, do it. At Echo Park Lake, the unhoused could imagine a world outside of the police state and carceral system that punished them for existing. At Echo Park Lake, abolition, even in microcosm, was possible. The media portrayals of Echo Park Lake often directly contradicted the reality of life in the park. Linda Kane described people that would come to the park, film the community, and, quote, go around slandering everybody, unquote. Nicole Ward recounted a particularly traumatic version of this experience with the Los Angeles Times. Once, when LAHSA visited her tent, they came with a retinue, one that started peppering her with questions. Assuming that this was part of their protocol as LAHSA workers, she answered all of them in hopes that doing so would help her secure housing and attain services. She gave them her full name, opened up about personal experiences with drug use, and when two of her friends began to fight, explained that it happens often, but they always make up. Weeks later, after she read an article featuring her personal information and photographs of her friends fighting, she realized all those extra LA HSA workers 
were actually Los Angeles Times journalists. Moreover, the photographs published of her two arguing friends depicted the park as a rowdy, violent place, rather than one where people could live in the fullness of their lives, which included working through conflict. Two people fighting verbally inside their homes wouldn't be the subject of a news article, after all, but in the park it became twisted into a talisman of violence. What the Los Angeles Times refused to see as violence, however, was their publication of Ward's name and personal location without her consent, which directly put her safety at risk. Kane analyzed this type of media coverage as intentional. Reporters would, quote, show all the bad on camera, which, quote, fed into the fire of why the government felt, oh, we should take this away, unquote. The media depicted the park as violent and criminal, and therefore deserving of systematic removal, repression, and banishment. These negative portrayals reflect the views of the state. The everyday practice of abolition at the park made the community a threat to the city by demonstrating the possibility of life outside its carceral modes. Prefiguration, the history of the Echo Park Lake Settlement, the park as refuge. The unhoused community at Echo Park Lake began to grow in September 2019. The neighborhood of Echo Park has always been home to a small group of unhoused individuals, but prior to that fall, there were very few tents spread throughout the entirety of the park. The infrastructure at Echo Park Lake provided several key elements that initially made it an ideal location for camping. Perhaps most importantly, the park offered access to public restrooms that were open almost 24 hours a day, access to sinks and soap dispensers, and access to clean drinking water via water fountains. When seeking an area to camp, having these three key elements present nearby is crucial for anyone trying to survive outdoors. During this time period, as the number of unhoused individuals was growing larger in Los Angeles City Council District 13, or CD13, and in surrounding districts, businesses that previously offered access to public restrooms and water, such as grocery stores, fast food restaurants, and gas stations, were locking their doors and requiring that purchases be made in order to use them. It was the ability to access these basic survival necessities without the hassle that they were encountering in other locations that brought the first few waves of unhoused individuals to the lake. Also during this time period, in fall 2019, encampments across the city were being brutally swept on a daily basis due to the changing parameters of CARE Plus Comprehensive Sweep Program. Although the CARE Care Plus program was marketed as a more humane version of encampment cleanups than previous models, by the end of 2019, individuals in encampments were being subjected to the same, and often worse, treatment at the hands of law enforcement and L.A. sanitation. Individuals who sought refuge in larger encampments in CD13 were forced to move all their belongings multiple blocks away from central encampments on a weekly basis for scheduled, quote, cleanings. During the sweeps, Individuals at encampments were given anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes to move all of their worldly possessions several city blocks, oftentimes at least a mile away, to be out of a designated cleaning zone. If an individual was unable to move all their items in the allotted time frame, they were kept out of the area by LAPD, and all remaining items would be trashed or put into storage at the bin in Skid Row. During these sweeps, it was not uncommon for L.A. sanitation to confiscate and or destroy personal belongings critical to survival, ranging from tents and bedding to food to personal documents such as IDs, social security cards, and documents pertinent to obtaining housing. CarePlus sweeps are a city-based program, and initially only public streets and sidewalks were subjected to these types of encampment sweeps. Parks, including Echo Park Lake, fall under the jurisdiction of Parks and Recreation, and park rangers, 
and are governed by LAMC 6344, as people in surrounding areas became more and more exhausted by having to move weekly and risked losing their belongings by staying in encampments on sidewalks. Echo Park Lake became a refuge. During Care Plus operations that took place on the streets around the perimeter of the park, Glendale Boulevard, Park Ave, Echo Park Lake Ave, and Bellevue Ave, LA Sanitation often encouraged individuals who were camping on the sidewalks around the park to move to the grassy area inside the park because they did not have instructions to conduct the cleanup operations inside the park. The Echo Park Community Center Emergency Shelter in the week leading up to Thanksgiving 2019, Los Angeles was preparing for a storm that would bring a level of rain and low temperatures that had not been experienced in the city for years. With nearly all interim housing sites and traditional shelters at capacity, leaders in the homeless services sector felt hard-pressed to take some sort of action to protect the growing homeless population from the impending storm. The solution that the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, LAHSA, landed on was that they would open several pop-up emergency winter shelter locations for the week and have the locations run by volunteers from the agency who did not have holiday plans. The pop-up locations were supposed to act as an intermediary solution that would provide access to low-barrier shelter and meal resources prior to the opening of the regular winter shelter locations, which were slated to open the following week. LAHSA identified several pop-up winter shelter locations that would be able to serve hundreds of unhoused community members during the rainy week. One of the emergency pop-up shelter sites that opened during this week was at Echo Park Community Center. Winter shelters are an impermanent shelter solution for the unhoused that offer a cot to sleep on during the winter months in Los Angeles, generally in operation from late November through April each year. Most winter shelters are opened in community centers or gymnasiums where anywhere from 20 to 150 pop-up cots can be set up in a single room. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, winter shelters required individuals to check in at 5 p.m. every day and vacate the location by 7 a.m. unless it was raining. Beds were distributed daily on a first-come, first-served basis, which generally meant that the people who wanted to stay at the shelter would not be able to leave the area if they wanted to be sure that they had a bed for the evening. During the COVID-19 pandemic, individuals participating in winter shelter programs were permitted, and often required, to stay at the site during the day, which took a lot of the stress of having one's bed given to someone else away. Winter shelters are an invaluable resource to individuals who are living unhoused because they are the lowest barrier entry shelter resources available. This means that anyone who is unhoused can come to claim a bed without having to go through any assessments, paperwork, or waiting lists before entering the shelter. If a bed is available and an individual is present when beds are being assigned, they will be able to enter. Outside of the winter shelter program, it can be extremely difficult to be placed in a shelter due to the scarcity of beds. The missions in Skid Row are the only shelters that allow people to walk in and seek shelter if a bed is available. The process to get into a majority of the city and county shelter programs require that an individual complete the arduous vulnerability index service prioritization decision assistance tool VISPDAT assessment to determine acuity score, then be placed on a wait list for anywhere from two weeks to six months, depending on how high they score in the assessment. Getting into even the most low-grade congregate shelter is often a grueling and time-consuming process. On the day that the emergency pop-up shelters were slated to open, LASHA teams began doing outreach early in the morning to inform the unhoused population in the area and provide transportation if needed.
During the scheduled workday, LAHSA staff scrambled to set up the gymnasium with military-style cots and blankets. The cots, blankets, and a warm place to stay during the rain were the only guaranteed resource that LAHSA could provide for a program set up with such little planning. LAHSA teams shuttled unhoused community members to the community center throughout the day. Because it was a holiday week, some LAHSA staff left early in the afternoon, but many stayed to ensure that their clients made it out of the rain and into the community center. The pop-up community center program relied solely on volunteer staff from LAHSA and First to Serve. By the early evening on November 27, 2019, Ashley Bennett, co-author of this monograph, and an outreach worker with LAHSA at the time, took command of running the Echo Park Community Center shelter due to the lack of personnel. Bennett began to reach out to community organizations in the area for support. She believed that the shelter experience should not only be a cot, blanket, and warm place to stay, but an actual enjoyable experience for all people who sought refuge there. By that evening, there were 36 unhoused individuals staying in the shelter, and a roster of volunteers ready to make the Thanksgiving holiday an enjoyable experience for all those present at the shelter. The volunteer team led by Bennett was quickly able to set up a functional shelter operation. This included spaces where unhoused residents could be alone if the congregate setting felt overwhelming, and arts and crafts and game stations for collective activities. In the initial planning stages of the pop-up winter shelters, LAHSA leadership stated that they would provide each pop-up location with three meals per day. Although volunteer staff members petitioned LAHSA leadership throughout the week to provide a delivery schedule so that they could inform the shelter residents, meal delivery was sporadic and unreliable. Bennett began making calls for hot food donations and coffee on social media on the first day of the Echo Park Community Center operation, which was amplified by community organizations like K-Town for All, Street Watch LA, and Ground Game LA. By that evening, the community center received numerous food donations. Bennett recalls the following, quote, I made a Google sheet on the first night and put time slots for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the upcoming days and sent it out to everyone. The hope was that different individuals and organizations would sign up to bring food at those designated times. Pantry actually signed up for a slot. That was stressful. The next morning, no one had signed up, and I thought, oh my god, I have 30-something people here and we have nothing to feed them. But sure enough, at 9 a.m., the sweet lady who was just a neighbor came with her kids and brought 20 cartons of coffee for everyone. Then someone else brought pastries and fruit. Then people started bringing Thanksgiving meals, like full-on Thanksgiving meals with turkey, mac and cheese, potatoes and gravy, vegetables, and so, so many desserts. I realized we were going to be okay on food. No one needed to sign up. People just kept bringing food because they wanted to help." Unquote. The success of the Echo Park Community Center pop-up shelter can largely be attributed to the non-carceral nature. There were basic rules in place that dealt with cleanliness and respect for other participants. However, there were no threats to kick residents out for certain behaviors. And perhaps most importantly, there was no curfew. Bennett notes the significance, quote, People were allowed to come and go as they pleased. We had one security guard by the door throughout the night, just in case we had a new arrival. And I slept in the back room in case there were any issues that the night volunteer staff of first to serve security guard couldn't handle. We didn't have any issues at night, though. There were a few people who got up to have a cigarette or go for a walk in the wee hours, but a majority of the residents just stayed inside. There were no rules about ins and outs, and there was no threat that if you left during a certain time, you would lose your bed. One of our arts and crafts projects was making nameplates for our beds. 
If you checked in and got a bed, that bed was yours, and no one had to worry about losing it. Being in a congregate setting can be stressful, and it wasn't always easy, but the whole volunteer staff wanted to make the space feel as much like home as possible for everyone there. Residents at the shelter also had access to the community center showers throughout the day, and they were incredibly grateful to have all of the hygiene needs met in one location, unquote. Programming was a major part of the Echo Park Community Center shelter. Along with calls for food and donations, Bennett also put out calls for community members to come and volunteer to do recreational activities with the unhoused residents. Throughout the week, people brought board games, decks of cards, and art supplies such as coloring books, crayons, paint, and canvases. Several people also brought in battery-operated radios so people could listen to music, and several volunteers brought in their laptops so that they could watch Netflix shows with participants in small groups. At any point in the day, unhoused residents and volunteers could participate in fun activities at the shelter. Bennett reflects, quote, It was a really beautiful, celebratory time. It was the first time I really saw what a holistic shelter environment could look like. We had people who were housed and unhoused, all together in one space, caring for one another, just trying to facilitate joy and healing. Not every moment was perfect. It was a large group of people, and there were a few squabbles and breakdowns. But each of those situations was handled with compassion, love, and care. Even though it was only open for a few days, I fell in love with so many of the people there, who became a family. No one wanted to leave. I didn't want to leave. It felt like a home, and I feel like if we truly want to end homelessness, that's how all housing programs should feel." Unquote. Termination and Closure After Echo Park Community Center Just a couple of days into the shelter, on early Saturday morning, volunteer staff at the Echo Park Community Center, EPCC, received word that the shelter would be closing the next day, and that they would be required to ensure that all residents had vacated the property by 7 a.m. With rain in the forecast for the following day, Bennett reached out to Christy Lovich, a fellow LAHSA employee and supervisor who ran the pop-up shelter site in Glassell Park, to try to strategize around appealing to LAHSA leadership to keep the shelters open. Lovich and Bennett reached out to the LAHSA Director of Access and Engagement, Nathaniel Vergao, and made the case for extending the pop-up shelter operations. They argued that exiting residents from the shelters back in the rain without any alternative shelter placement was not only inhumane, but it would be a major breach of trust with dozens of unhoused clients who were very clearly motivated to receive shelter. Vergao responded that, quote, the city is not willing to keep any of their sites open past 7 a.m. tomorrow, and that winter shelters would be available at 14 sites throughout the city starting the following night. The closest winter shelter to the Echo Park Community Center would be the location 12 miles away at Athens Park. Bennett and Lovich refused to accept orders from their superiors that would require them to evict unhoused shelter residents back on the street. Lovich continued to petition LAHSA leadership to reconsider their decision, and Bennett contacted members of Ground Game LA for support. Ground Game LA founder and organizer Jessica Salins put Bennett in contact with Los Angeles City Council member for District 11, Mike Bonin. Once Bonin was brought up to speed on the shelter closures, he was irate. He informed Bennett that he would reach out to the mayor's office and to LAHSA leadership to communicate his anger about the situation and advocate for those who sought shelter to remain indoors. At 8 p.m. on Saturday evening, after a grueling day of negotiations and uncertainty, Bennett and Lovich were finally briefed on a plan that would enable all shelter residents to remain indoors. While the Echo Park Community Center shelter would still have to close on Sunday, 
First to Serve staff agreed to open the winter shelter in Athens Park a day early and give priority beds to all residents in the Echo Park Community Center. On Sunday morning, Council Member Bonin arranged for three city buses to take residents from the community center's shelter to the winter shelter location in Athens Park. But in the days after Echo Park Community Center shelter closed, Bennett received numerous reports of subpar conditions at Athens Park from former residents. Bennett recalls, quote, Almost every day, someone would let me know that they were leaving Athens Park Community Center winter shelter because the staff had treated them badly, or they couldn't live with having to leave every day at 7 a.m. and never know if they were going to have a bed at night, or getting sick from the food, or feeling so far away from the area they were used to. It was very different from Echo Park Community Center. A lot of people felt that they would be better off returning to the streets in an area they were familiar with than feeling imprisoned in an unfamiliar place in South L.A., unquote. Bennett worked to stay in contact with everyone who stayed at Echo Park Community Center. In the two weeks after the closure, she estimates that about half of the residents who went to Athens Park had returned to the Echo Park area, and a majority of those who returned began or continued camping at Echo Park Lake. Bennett recalls doing outreach at the park a few times prior to the operation of the Echo Park Community Center shelter, but when individuals she had gotten close with began camping there again, she worked to have her LAHSA team visit the park multiple times a week to try and get people into housing. Bennett explained the situation thus, quote, I really felt a sense of responsibility to the folks who were at EPCC, and I felt that I'd let them down. We experienced such a beautiful home environment at EPCC, and then they had terrible experiences at Athens. So I wanted to make that right for each and every one of them by helping them get into housing. There weren't any housing resources available. Everyone was on a wait list for something. And that's when I think the vision started to become clear for some of us. We're all here. We care about each other. And until we can create a community with the feeling of home indoors like we had at EPCC, we're going to do it outdoors right here in the park. The fight for Echo Park Lake. Threats, lies, and film permits. By January 2020, the encampment at Echo Park Lake had grown to around 60 residents. The northwest lawn of the park, easily visible from the heavily trafficked intersection of Glendale Boulevard and Park Avenue, was filled with colorful tents of all sizes. The increasing number of unhoused residents and the high visibility of the location made the park a prime target for harassment by law enforcement. Residents began reporting increased encounters with LAPD and park rangers at the beginning of 2020. Former park residents recounted many instances of being woken up between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. by LAPD, with officers banging flashlights on their tents aggressively. LAPD would tell them forcefully that the park was, quote, closed, and that they would need to vacate the premises by the following evening. Former park resident Irene Joseph recalls, quote, It was a form of psychological torture. I would just be finally falling asleep which is really hard to do as a woman sleeping outdoors sometimes. And then I would wake up to a group of men with guns banging on my tent, telling me that I couldn't be there. It was the middle of the night. I don't know where they expected me to go. I couldn't sleep after that, unquote. Community organization Streetwatch LA began meeting with park residents with increased regularity as instances of harassment and abuse became more commonplace, and residents expressed a desire to learn about their rights and options to counter the threats made against them. The first official notice of an eviction at Echo Park Lake came on the week of January 10, 2020. The park rangers posted notices around the park informing residents that all property must be removed by January 12 for a comprehensive, quote, area cleaning that was slated to occur between January 13 and January 17. During the posting of the notices, rangers informed residents that although the 
cleaning operation would end on the 17th, residents would not be able to continue camping there as they were going to begin enforcing the park curfew and no camping restrictions in accordance with a municipal ordinance, LAMC 6344. At this point, residents were faced with an impossible situation. Park rangers told them that they had to vacate the park while members of LA Sanitation and LAPD were simultaneously conducting Care Plus operations in surrounding areas and penalizing people for camping on the street. Many Echo Park Lake residents during this time were working with the LA HSA team Hope West, which included Bennett, and were on waiting lists to get into a bridge home and other shelter programs. But shelters and temporary programs across the city were at capacity. Residents of the encampment were growing tired of being kept in a constant state of upheaval while waiting for such placements. Because of the resources that the park offered and the community that they started to build there, residents decided that it was time to fight back and advocate for a safe place to exist outdoors while they waited for housing placements. Residents at the park thus informed activists from Streetwatch LA and Ground Game LA that they wanted to fight the pending eviction, and they requested that supporters of the community come out to protest the permanent eviction from the park on January 13, the day that the operation was scheduled to begin. A call to action went out on social media the evening of January 12. On the morning of January 13, activists joined park residents on the Northwest Lawn at 7 a.m. Housed and unhoused community members came together to make signs and strategize around how to form a blockade around people's tents when the park rangers arrived. When the rangers arrived, it became clear that they had not gone through proper channels to schedule a comprehensive cleanup of the park. When LA Sanitation arrived, the Environmental Compliance Inspector, ECI, who had been dispatched, said that he felt uncomfortable carrying out an operation within the park because it fell under the jurisdiction of the City of Los Angeles Department of Recreation and Parks. LA Sanitation had only been given orders to clean the streets around the park and were not informed of the park ranger's desire to have the entire park cleared out. By 9 a.m., LA Sanitation departed from the scene and the threat of a Care Plus comprehensive cleanup dissipated. At 9.30 a.m., the LAPD officers who had been called to monitor the protest and Chief Park Ranger Joe Lossarelli had a conversation with Bennett about the operation. The narrative shifted. This was not a comprehensive Care Plus cleanup and eviction ordered by the city, but cleanup, get ready, for the Nike Corporation, which had applied for a permit to film in the area and did not want the tents in the park. In a video captured by a member of Ground Game LA, Bennett and Echo Park Lake residents questioned Lossarelli about a comprehensive park clearing. It goes like this. Bennett, ECI Kevin said that this wasn't a comprehensive cleanup that he had been assigned to do. The Rangers have been posting notices and telling residents all this week that this is a Care Plus comprehensive cleanup ordered by the city, and that's why they would have to leave. Lossarelli, this is actually a notice that the park needs to be cleared because of a film crew that has a permit to shoot in the area. The permit has them on location from the 13th to the 17th. They'll be filming on the 17th, but they'll be setting up out here. So the tents have got to go. Bennett, okay, so how are you all going to be enforcing that? Because ECI Kevin said, well, Sorelli, well, if they don't leave, we're going to take them down because Nike applied for a permit. They paid for it. It's been in the works for several weeks. It's only right that if Nike pays to use the park, the people in the park have to vacate. Bennett, okay, I understand. I used to work in production, so I know what goes into filming on location. The issue is that none of that information was given to us. We've been receiving contradictory information from your rangers all week. What the rangers have been communicating is that this was going to be an eviction that would last beyond the 17th. 
I spoke with one of the supervisors of the park rangers on the phone, and the ranger said that the goal for this month was going to be evicting everyone. The information we've been getting from park rangers at the helm, I guess, is that on the 17th, when folks are allowed back in the park, according to this notice, law enforcement is going to be involved and everyone will have to remain off the premises. Losarelli. Well, there are posts completely around the park that say no tents allowed during the day. That's in any city park. If you go to Griffith Park, Elysian Park, the city system does not allow tents to be in the park. The parks close at 10.30 at night. We enforce that. And so if the parks are closed at 10.30 at night, it's for everybody. You can't tell this gentleman over here that you can't be here past 10.30 at night and then allow this person over here to be here. This isn't an encampment ground. This is a park. and We've been getting complaints about it. So eventually we're going to enforce that. So now here John Dell, an Echo Park Lake resident, asks, Who have you been getting complaints from? Losarelli, from the citizens that live here in the neighborhood. The complaints aren't sent out to you folks. Let me be honest with you, okay? You guys get a lot of support from advocate groups for the homeless, but there are also a lot of folks who don't want tents in the park. And they shouldn't be in the park. It's a park. John Dell. Well, what if we put the tents down in the daytime? Losarelli. Well, go over there and look at them now. They're supposed to be down. John Dell. The only reason they're not down is because of what we've got going on here. It's the only reason why they're up. Losarelli. I'm here every day, sir. Last week I saw some guy smoking dope and... John Dell. What's that got to do with us? Bennett. So is this going to be announced? You're going to tell people this right now? Losarelli. I'll go tell them and let them know that we did not. This wasn't our doing. Basically, it was posted by the city because there's going to be filming. Bennett. Okay, so on the 17th, when the filming is completed, or has been completed, will folks be allowed back in the park? Losarelli. Uh, that really depends on... We have some meetings set up to address the issue here, and so I'm not sure exactly. I'm going to tell people they can't do it. Sachin, a community organizer, asks, what meetings? Losarelli. It's a meeting that I have with LAPD. I'm not going to disclose where that meeting is going to be. That's a confidential meeting. That's classified. Continuing, following the conversation with Losarelli, the group of residents and organizers was angered by the egregious shift in the narrative that they had just witnessed. Encampment leaders decided that because Chief Park Ranger Losarelli ultimately placed the blame for the eviction posting on the city, that the appropriate next steps would be to march to Councilmember Mitchell Farrell's house, located one block north of the park, and demand a meeting with him about the eviction and housing placements. O'Farrell's staff did not open the doors for encampment residents or organizers. The protest ended at approximately 12 p.m. Following the protest, LAPD HQ tweeted a response to the protest due to the media coverage it gained, stating, quote, Contrary to media reports, there was no scheduled cleaning of Echo Park by L.A. Park Ranger or LAPD personnel today. However, Film L.A. did issue a filming permit for the park later this week, unquote. As is evidenced by the numerous postings, eyewitness counts, and video footage of park rangers and LAPD, this was a lie. On the day following the protest, organizers in Street Watch LA and Ground Game LA were informed that Juan Fergoso, the field deputy for Echo Park in Councilmember Mitch O'Farrell's office, told a source that the office was planning to schedule a sweep the following morning, quote, due to the film permit. Organizers reached out to peers in the entertainment industry and quickly learned that the film permit had not been acquired by Nike, but by the nonprofit organization Film LA for the production company Park Pictures. Through a personal connection, John Motter, a founding member of Ground Game LA, contacted the head of production for the shoot in question. On the afternoon of January 14, 2020, the head of production for Park Pictures issued a memo clarifying the location of the shoot 
and the company's stance on the encampment. Quote, we know that there is a group of unhoused residents located in the Echo Park Lake area near Park Avenue and Glendale Boulevard, North End. Park Pictures hereby would like to confirm that this group of unhoused residents and their presence will in no way impact our filming activities as we are located in a completely different area of the park. Park Pictures does not need them to move, nor are we asking any of the city authorities to remove them, unquote. The memo was sent to the office of Mitch O'Farrell, the city of Los Angeles Department of Recreation and Parks, the mayor's office, and the LAPD. With permission from the production company, Ground Game LA posted a redacted version of the statement to the organization's Facebook and Instagram pages. Within an hour of posting, the post was removed from both platforms due to being flagged as, quote, spam. So you wonder who mass reported it. From the threats and eventual retraction of eviction, to the false claim that the area needed to be cleared due to a film permit obtained by Nike, to the revelation that the production company that had actually filed the permit would not film anywhere near the encampment and did not have any desire to have unhoused individuals removed, those who had been following the story witnessed the web of lies that law enforcement had been weaving in an attempt to clear the encampment was made evidently clear. It was clear that a massive, coordinated effort was underway to clear the encampment by any means necessary, and to appease housed constituents who had been submitted complaints. The fight to remain. In the weeks following the protest on January 13, 2020, the unhoused residents at Echo Park Lake began making major strides in developing a cohesive and supportive community collective. The struggle to remain in the park with a pending threat of eviction brought park residents together. Along with the positive growth of the community came the darkness and turmoil that stemmed from the retaliation from park rangers, LAPD, and Councilmember O'Farrell's office for the embarrassment over their deceitful eviction attempt. LAPD and park rangers continued to make rounds in the middle of the night. They continued to shake tents and forcefully tell park residents that the park had closed and that if they didn't vacate the park prior to 10.30 p.m. the following evening, they would risk citations or arrest for violating LAMC 6344. Although these were largely empty threats, a small group of individuals grew extremely tired of being startled awake in the middle of the night. So they made the decision to move to the sidewalks surrounding the park to avoid these nightly disturbances. On January 21, 2020, two unhoused park residents, Omar Dawson and Eddie Price, were arrested by park rangers for smoking weed in the park. Dawson and Price were not in the act of smoking when they were arrested. Dawson had been seen by a ranger smoking earlier in the day, and the rangers said that they had seen a picture of Price smoking in the park. Smoking weed in Echo Park Lake is not an uncommon occurrence, and it is certainly not an activity that only unhoused people take part in. It was clear that the rangers were targeting Dawson, who had emerged as a leader in the encampment. Can I just add, imagine being these cops, and like, your job is to just monitor for leaders within the homeless community? How sick is this game? How do you do that? Like, how literally do these people function get up in the morning they're eating a bowl of cereal and they're like they're thinking about who's leading the homeless and how i need to target them it's amazing and despicable the fight to remain was also intensifying across los angeles in the week following the january 13 2020 protest at echo park lake the city announced major changes to its care care plus encampment sweeps protocol the change in programming outlined in a january 21st 2020 City of Los Angeles Interdepartmental Report, shifted the power of deploying Care and Care Plus teams 
from LAHSA and the Unified Homelessness Response Center, UHRC, to city council offices. LAPD's role in sweep operations was expanded with LAPD Homeless Outreach and Proactive Engagement, or HOPE, officers to be deployed along with care teams at, quote, sites with documented histories of escalation or aggressive or confrontational behavior, unquote. This was a significant shift in the role of police enforcement in the CARE, CARE Plus program. Since the start of the program, LAPD was not allowed to be present at sweeps and would only become a part of the operation if they were called in by LA Sanitation. At places like Echo Park Lake, the change in policy gave explicit permission to LAPD and LA Sanitation to conduct cleanup operations in areas that were previously the jurisdiction of the Department of Recreation and Parks. Quote, LASAN, LASAN, and LAPD will conduct operations on city property owned or operated by the Department of Recreation and Parks, RAP, with RAP operational teams no longer needed on site, ensuring greater coverage of parks across the city through interdepartmental coordination, unquote. Care Plus operations were now officially allowed to be conducted within parks, and a sweep of Echo Park Lake became imminent. Within hours of the report being released, postings for a Care Plus comprehensive cleanup at Echo Park Lake appeared around Echo Park Lake for January 24, 2020. Park residents and community organizers also began developing a defense strategy for the park. They expected the operations scheduled for January 24 would be a more organized, calculated, and brutish eviction attempt than what had occurred previously. Everyone agreed that in order to have a chance at halting the sweep and eviction, there would need to be a massive turnout to defend the unhoused residents at the park. On January 22, Streetwatch LA posted a call for people to show up at the park on the morning of January 24 to help to defend the community at Echo Park Lake. The action details were circulated widely by supporting organizations, including Ground Game LA, K-Town for All, CELA Neighborhood Homeless Coalition, and many others. While the physical turnout at the park was of the utmost importance, park residents and organizers understood that the messaging around the action and the experiences and demands of the park residents needed to be explicitly clear. This way, the broader public would understand the situation and why action needed to be taken. On the evening of January 23rd, unhoused park residents publicly released a letter to Mitch O'Farrell, making an honest and thorough plea for him to halt the eviction process, meet with the community, and work with them to find housing solutions. Comment, this is the previous video in the Homeless Industrial Complex playlist, Dear Mitch, Don't Evict Us. The letter included the following, quote, we, the unhoused residents of Echo Park Lake, are coming to you as your constituents and fellow human beings to express our fear, grief, and anger in regards to the severe harassment and persecution we have felt at the hands of law enforcement and city employees over the past three months. We've built a community at this lake that is now made up of more than 60 people, and we're facing the threat of eviction and being displaced from our community, the family we've built here every single day, and we're devastated. We did not end up unhoused by choice, nor do we desire to stay on the streets forever. At this point, there is no viable option for shelter within or near CD13 for all of us. Many of us have tried to enter the shelter system elsewhere and do not feel safe or comfortable returning to those places. Many of us have Section 8 vouchers. Many of us are on two to three year long waiting lists for programs that would lead to permanent supportive housing. But what we need and what we desire is to create a solution within the city council district our home. Before you answer or take any action against us, please come and meet our community 
and discuss this matter with us first. Yours truly, constituents of Echo Park Lake, unquote. Also that evening, community organizers worked with encampment residents to ensure that everyone felt comfortable with the plan of action for the following day. A majority of the encampment residents were prepared to stay in the park and stand against L.A. sanitation and LAPD, even if it meant losing their personal belongings or suffering punishment in the form of citation or arrest. Residents who were worried about staying in the park received help moving their tents and personal belongings to the city streets surrounding the park, where they would not be at risk during the operation. Organizers and community members who were not present at the park on the evening before the sweep worked to circulate the letter from Echo Park Lake residents on social media, developed a petition to support the unhoused community at Echo Park Lake via change.org, and made personal appeals to Councilmember O'Farrell via phone and email, demanding that he halt the eviction. Around 6.30 a.m. on the morning of January 24, 2020, activists, organizers, legal observers from National Lawyers Guild of Los Angeles, NLGLA, and press began showing up to greet park residents on the North Lawn. Breakfast was brought in for residents and served on tables in the center of the encampment. The plan for the day was to host a press conference with designated encampment residents at 7.30 a.m. and then move into a defensive position by forming a human barrier between the encampment and L.A. sanitation equipment and personnel. Longtime Echo Park Lake organizer and founding member of Streetwatch L.A., Jed Parriott, and founding member of Ground Game LA, Ashley Bennett, who attended the protest outside of LA HSA work hours as a supporter of the Echo Park Lake community, were the designated liaisons for the protest. They coordinated the protest with the support of encampment residents Eamon Ahmed and Devon Brown. LA Sanitation, LAPD, and park rangers began arriving on the scene at the park at 7 a.m. Organizers and park residents decided to begin the press conference early, to allow enough time for activists to get into defensive positions prior to the start of the operation. Encampment residents took turns stepping up to the microphone in front of the press line. They shared the stories of how they became homeless, explained the trials and tribulations of trying to get into housing, and expressed how the community at the park had become a refuge to them. After the speaker program, activists and organizers were put into position around the perimeter of the North Lawn by Ahmed and Bennett. Shortly after the blockade perimeter around the encampment was established, L.A. Sanitation and Recreation and Parks made an attempt to begin the cleanup operation by driving a Recreation and Parks truck into the park on the sidewalk to the left of where the protest perimeter had been established. Bennett yelled for protesters to move from the line on Glendale Boulevard to the sidewalk where the truck was coming in and to stage a sit-down. This maneuver succeeded, and the truck was forced to back out of the park to ensure that none of the sitting protesters would be harmed. The blockade formation then shifted. Protesters moved from standing around the perimeter of the encampment to sitting in lines at all potential sidewalk entry points. Ahmed quickly realized that the new formation left portions of the encampment vulnerable and began assigning individuals who were not on the front lines of the sidewalk blockade to stand by and defend specific tents in the encampment. With all potential entry points to the encampment blocked and tents defended, LA Sanitation, Park Rangers, and LAPD were forced to enter into negotiations with liaisons and encampment residents. Park residents and protesters argued angrily with city personnel, pressing them to answer where people would go if they were evicted from the park, where council member Mitch O'Farrell was, and why O'Farrell wasn't willing to meet with the encampment to collectively work towards solutions. During the standoff between protesters and personnel, Bennett and Parriott spoke with ECIs, ranking LAPD officers, and Chief Park Ranger Losarelli about canceling the operation. 
LAHSA Associate Director of Access and Engagement, Victor Hinderletter, entered in the middle of negotiations. Hinderletter asked Bennett if she would agree to let Perriott take over negotiations for the protest because he feared what the ramifications would be at LAHSA if she continued at the scene. Bennett agreed to leave the protest, and Perriott became the lone liaison negotiating on behalf of the protest. After nearly two hours of protest and negotiations, the ranking officers present made the decision to call off the comprehensive cleanup and eviction. LA Sanitation and Parks and Recreation sent a handful of workers to collect trash from around the encampment, with protesters allowing this as they remained in a defensive position around the tents. During the negotiations, Perriott was able to broker a meeting between ranking LAPD officers, the city attorney, and encampment residents Devon Brown and Eamon Ahmed. After LAPD and city personnel began to vacate the area, encampment residents and protesters celebrated the success of the blockade and triumphantly marched from the park to Councilmember O'Farrell's office in hopes that he would be ready to meet with them. When encampment residents reached the office and requested a meeting, O'Farrell refused. The Aftermath of the January 24, 2020 Blockade Immediately following the successful blockade on January 24, 2020, LAPD Commander Vito Palazzolo arrived at Echo Park Lake to talk to unhoused residents. Amen Ahmed and Devon Brown engaged in a conversation with Palazzolo, along with Jed Perriott of Streetwatch LA and Kath Rogers of National Lawyers Guild LA. Also present was Emily Alpert Reyes of the Los Angeles Times. After Ahmed relayed the community's demands to stop the displacement attempts and to meet with Councilmember O'Farrell, Palazzolo said that LAPD can only enforce laws, not change them. He offered to hold a formal meeting with community members to continue the conversation. Ahmed and Brown consulted with encampment residents who collectively decided that a meeting with Palazzolo could be useful in several ways. It could show the city that encampment residents were serious about a formal dialogue, and it could also put pressure on Councilmember O'Farrell to hold a meeting with residents. A meeting was set for January 28, 2020, just a few days later. The meeting place was on the second floor of the old firehouse in Angelino Heights. There, Ahmed and Brown represented encampment residents, with Perriott and Jorge Gonzalez from NLGLA joining to provide support. Ahmed and Brown gave personal testimony of their experience of being unhoused, how they became unhoused, and how harmful police had been for them, and they relayed their demands. LAPD Commander Palazzola responded, saying, quote, We understand this crisis. I used to patrol Skid Row for years. And, quote, We know that policing isn't the solution. He continued that they had no power in changing ordinances. Only City Hall had that. Ahmed and Brown asked that LAPD not enforce, threaten, or intimidate park residents until they were able to get a meeting with O'Farrell. Captain Alfonso Lopez countered, quote, Will you guys agree to take your tents down during the day? Ahmed and Brown asked, Would you really stop enforcing if we take tents down during the day? Palazzolo replied that they cannot guarantee that they would not enforce. Continuing, If you leave the park and go to a city sidewalk, you can have your tent up all day. It's just the park ordinance that prohibits tents being up during the day. Comment. Imagine being more concerned with that than the situation of mass homelessness. Anyway, Parriott immediately responded, quote, Actually, Commander Palazzolo, you're incorrect. LAMC 5611 states that tents up are prohibited from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. on all city sidewalks. We've seen it enforced many times. Palazzolo then awkwardly shrugged. Oh, oops, I guess you're right. Cops stop lying for five minutes challenge. Impossible. With that, the meeting was over. 
In the meantime, Councilmember O'Farrell had not responded to or even acknowledged the letter from the unhoused residents at Echo Park Lake. Between January and March of 2020, the community made numerous unanswered requests to meet with him. Along with the letter from the unhoused community at large, four encampment residents named Jordan, Jasmine, Lloyd, and Bobby also attached personal letters to Councilmember O'Farrell, documenting their personal experiences of trying to obtain housing, and they asked for the opportunity to meet. O'Farrell's staffer, Jean Min, responded thus, quote, Dear Jordan, Jasmine, Lloyd, and Bobby, the council member received your letter and asked that I reply on his behalf. Thank you for sharing your stories. We strongly encourage you and any other constituents who need assistance with housing to contact my office at 213-207-3015 with your LAHSA caseworker's name and phone number so that we may schedule an appointment to assist in expediting your case, unquote. The group responded to the email that Ashley Bennett was the LAHSA caseworker who represented them and other members of the community who had drafted the collective letter. The group shared Bennett's contact information and stated that they were looking forward to scheduling an appointment. There was no further communication from O'Farrell's office after this response email. Bennett was terminated from LAHSA less than one week later at the bidding of Councilmember O'Farrell. That is so scummy. That is amazing. Wow. On the Monday following the protest at Echo Park Lake, Bennett was called into a private meeting with LAHSA Associate Director of Access and Engagement, Victor Hinderleader, and her direct supervisor, Peter Mata. During the meeting, Hinderleader revealed to Bennett that O'Farrell had placed a call to then-interim director of LAHSA, Heidi Marston. He was very angry that an employee at LAHSA was, quote, get ready, instigating anarchy at Echo Park Lake. Hinderleader expressed to Bennett that he and the rest of the leadership staff at LAHSA was especially concerned about this complaint because O'Farrell was the head of the Los Angeles City Council Homelessness and Poverty Committee at the time, maybe a position he should not hold, but okay, and therefore was directly responsible for signing off on the funding for numerous LAHSA programs. Hinderleader informed Bennett that due to the complaint, she would no longer be able to conduct outreach in City Council District 13. Further, there would be an investigatory meeting set up regarding the incident, but that Hinderleader didn't think it would result in anything more than a warning. He encouraged Bennett to reach out to her SEIU union representative for support and guidance on how to prepare. After the meeting, Bennett continued her daily work routine without any information on when or where this investigatory meeting would be held. On the Monday of the following week, Mata told Bennett to stay back from the field because Hinderleader needed to speak with her. When Hinderleader came into the office an hour later, he informed Bennett that the investigatory meeting would be taking place that morning. Bennett's union representation was unavailable to be at the meeting on such short notice and asked that Bennett make a request to postpone the meeting. When Bennett made the request, Hinderleader told Bennett that the leadership staff did not feel it was necessary to have a union representative present for the meeting because they, quote, just needed to share a bit of information with her. This is sort of like cops telling you, oh, you don't need a lawyer, blah, blah, blah. Hinderleader and Mata walked with Bennett to the location of the investigatory meeting where several members of LAHSA leadership and human resources staff were present. Bennett was invited to sit down, and the director of human resources informed Bennett that her employment was being terminated effective immediately. I mean, I guess technically that's some information. Hinderleader added, so this guy knew the entire fucking time. 
Hinderleader added that the reason for the termination was related to the conversation they had had the week prior and that the agency had decided that her employment there was, quote, not a good fit. Well, how specific. Members of Human Resources confiscated Bennett's work materials and escorted her out of the building. Bennett was devastated by the termination and documented her response in an open letter to Mitch O'Farrell titled, Dear Mitch, You Can't Fire a Movement. Sprinklers, batons, and handcuffs. In the weeks that followed the January 24, 2020 blockade, tension between park residents and law enforcement continued to escalate. Park rangers and LAPD worked diligently to make life at the park as unpleasant for residents as possible. LAPD continued visiting the encampment at hours between 12 a.m. and 4 a.m. and began telling residents that by sleeping in the park, they were risking being cited or arrested. Park rangers began doing the same during the day. Literally, do these people have nothing better to do? I guess not. The Los Angeles Department of Recreation and Parks began turning on sprinklers during random hours of the day and night in areas of the park with tents. For park residents, this was a time of constant fear and uncertainty. There were also instances where park residents were detained, though not arrested, for having their tents up during the day. Throughout the chaos, harassment, and turmoil the encampment experienced at the hands of law enforcement, the bonds between community organizers and encampment residents continued to grow and strengthen. Streetwatch LA continued to host meetings every Saturday at the park. The meetings included Know Your Rights trainings, which educated park residents and community organizers about the history of criminalization in Los Angeles, the various legal strategies that had been fought and won by unhoused people in Los Angeles, their right to film police, what to say if cops came to harass residents, how to provide jail support, and the risks involved with fighting back against law enforcement. The hours following each meeting were a time of joy, celebration, and friendship amidst a dark and chaotic time. Housed and unhoused members of the Echo Park community looked forward to this time each week and spent the late afternoon and early evening hours eating together, laughing together, dancing, singing, creating art, and getting to know one another at a deeper level. On February 3, 2020, LAPD Captain Alfonso Lopez paid a visit to the park for the first time since the protest on January 24. Captain Lopez approached Devon Brown and asked, Why are your tents up during the day? I thought we agreed that you would keep them down during the day. He then informed Brown and other community members in the area that if they did not leave the park by 10 p.m. that evening, rangers and LAPD would issue citations and make arrests for camping in the park. Community organizers and park residents quickly decided to host an event at the park that evening, in which housed members of the community would camp with unhoused community members and risk citation and arrest alongside them. More than 50 organizers and activists from Streetwatch LA, Ground Game LA, Selah Neighborhood Homeless Coalition, and K-Town for All came and camped out at the park with unhoused residents that night. LAPD did arrive on the scene briefly, but upon observing the number of housed community members camped out with unhoused residents, quickly departed from the scene. After housed community members had departed, park rangers arrived at the park the following day, February 4, and posted notices informing park residents that a major sweep would occur on February 5, that they were required to move out of the park by 9.30 a.m. that day. Community organizations posted a call for defense against the sweep immediately. I mean, just even reading about this, it's wearing me out. The constant harassment and the need to defend themselves against the cops, it's just incredible that these. this is the way that resources are deployed 
in capitalism. It's amazing. Just put the people in housing, then you don't have to do any of this. It's like they enjoy it. On the morning of February 5, LAPD, park rangers, and LA Sanitation entered the park in force, possibly due to the short lead time. Fewer community members had attended in support, but they still managed to ensure that no tents or personal property in the park was destroyed. LA Sanitation downgraded the operation from a comprehensive cleanup to a, quote, spot cleaning. They only picked up trash and did not require any residents to move. A Recreation and Parks employee informed a resident after the operation ended that LA Sanitation, Park Rangers, and LAPD intended to continue scheduling comprehensive sweeps every Wednesday until they were able to successfully remove everyone from the park. And how do you think that's going? You know, that's not going to give people anywhere to go. They're like, that doesn't fix any of the problem. So it's just futile and it's a waste of city resources. It is destabilizing the lives of people, which their situation is already very unstable. This makes absolutely no sense. Upon learning that the plan was to attempt a comprehensive sweep and eviction the following Wednesday, park residents and community organizers acted to plan another heavily attended blockade. On that next Wednesday, February 12, LAPD, park rangers, and LA Sanitation showed up at Echo Park Lake yet again to terrorize and displace the unhoused community at the park. Organizers, news media, and community supporters showed up for the blockade in the largest protest numbers to date and were again able to prevent a sweep and eviction from occurring. During the protest, organizers also set up tents with signs on the sidewalk in front of Councilmember Mitch O'Farrell's office on Sunset Boulevard and outside of the Parkview Living Apartment Complex directly across from the park to demonstrate where park residents would legally be allowed to camp if they were forced to leave the park. An inside source at Recreation and Parks had revealed that many of the complaints against the encampment were coming from the Parkview Living apartment complex. This was also later confirmed by some apartment dwellers who started attending neighborhood council meetings. The comment, in other words, they were saying, okay, you don't want us in the park. Would you prefer that we camp on the sidewalk directly in front of your building? Because that's where we would go. The February 2020 operation was called off, and protesters marched once again to Council Member O'Farrell's office to request a meeting. Bennett was at the front of the march and brought flowers to O'Farrell's office as a peace offering following her forced termination. She felt that there would be no hard feelings about the situation if O'Farrell agreed to meet with the unhoused community and worked with them to find permanent housing. Bennett and encampment resident Lloyd Edwards were briefly allowed into the office to speak with field deputy Juan Fergoso, who denied that the office had any involvement in Bennett's termination. Fergoso said that he would bring the request for a meeting to O'Farrell and follow up with the group. The office's involvement in Bennett's termination was unearthed by California Public Records Act documents released later in the year, and Fergoso never made an attempt to follow up regarding a meeting with the council member. On Wednesday, February 26, 2020, park rangers brutally attacked and arrested park resident Devon Brown. Brown had been gaining notoriety in the weeks leading up to his arrest, due to powerful speeches given during protests and during public comment at city council meetings that discussed the community at Echo Park Lake as an agenda item. On the morning of the scheduled, quote, cleanup, Brown began questioning park rangers about his housing status and where park residents would go if they were forced to leave. 
When the Rangers announced that they were going to begin throwing away all the property in the park, Brown continued to ask park rangers where people were supposed to sleep and how they were supposed to shelter themselves if all of their belongings were disposed of. In a video posted by Streetwatch LA on Twitter, Chief Park Ranger Joe Losarelli can be seen approaching Eamon Ahmed and Brown, stating, quote, It's a park cleanup. You're not going to tell us how to do our job. He squares his shoulders and forcefully tells Brown, Get the fuck out of here, in a blatant attempt to escalate the situation. Brown responds to this advance by Losarelli with an equally forceful, What the fuck are you talking about, while maintaining his distance. Streetwatch LA organizer Jed Parriott can then be heard encouraging Brown back up as Ahmed continues to sit peacefully in a folding chair between Losarelli and Brown. Moments later, in a video captured by protesters, Brown can be heard saying, For what? as he backs away from the park rangers. Rangers then aggressively close in on Brown with their batons drawn. As Brown backs away from the scene, as he had been told to do, he trips over a tree branch and stumbles and one park ranger sprints to keep up with him. Brown can be heard asking, Are you going to hit me with that? For what? The ranger, with his baton drawn, can be heard screaming, Put your hands behind your back. Brown then stumbles slightly again, still attempting to put space between himself and the park ranger charging him. A park ranger behind Brown puts him in a chokehold and brings him to the ground. The video ends with Brown being held down by several park rangers, one laying on top of him and handcuffed. The incident captured on video illustrates the eagerness of the park rangers to escalate situations. Indeed, park rangers have continuously petitioned the Los Angeles City Council for the right to bear arms in the field, as police officers are allowed to do. If park rangers on the scene that day had been armed, Brown may have suffered a fate far worse than incarceration. After the altercation, Brown was taken to the LAPD Metropolitan Detention Center and charged with battery of an officer, even though in reality, Brown had been the one who was thrown to the ground, and actually retreating. Community members immediately demanded for Brown's release. Images with the hashtag FreeDevon circulated on social media with information to call into the LAPD Metropolitan Detention Center to demand Brown's release. According to operators at the detention center, they were fielding hundreds of calls regarding Brown, and around 6 p.m., the main phone line was no longer open, likely due to call volume. Brown was released the following day, and ultimately he was not charged. In the weeks following Brown's arrest, park residents noticed a subsequent decrease in the amount of interaction that they were having with park rangers, LAPD, and city personnel. Eamon Ahmed recalls that the time seemed, quote, eerily peaceful, and park residents braced themselves for massive retaliation the following Wednesday. In actuality, the retaliation that park residents had anticipated would not come for more than a year, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. City staff were being briefed on the potential closing of the city, leaving less time to focus on the clearing of homeless encampments. When the shutdown of Los Angeles was announced on March 13, 2020, park residents and activists shifted their focus to demand adequate shelter-in-place opportunities for unhoused residents across the city. Activism at the height of COVID-19. On March 6, 2020, Park residents learned about a proposal Councilmember Mitchell Farrell had introduced to the City Council regarding a temporary emergency congregate shelter at St. Paul's Church across the street from Echo Park Lake. Residents were informed by LA HSA personnel and LAPD that they would receive priority in entering the shelter, but if residents chose not to enter the shelter, there would be grave consequences, including arrests. With growing concern about the spread of the coronavirus, 
Park residents again published an open letter to Council Member O'Farrell outlining their concerns. Quote, At this moment, our tents feel safest. If a shelter is to be provided, it should consist of private rooms with a maximum of one roommate. The letter from encampment residents was again ignored by O'Farrell's office, and requests for a meeting with the council member by park residents were denied. As the city officially shut down due to the pandemic, community organizations shifted their focus to ensure that encampment residents had access to basic survival needs, as many city-sanctioned services were being discontinued. Organizations including Street Watch LA, Los Angeles Community Action Network, LA Can, and Mutual Aid LA, a newly formed COVID-19 response network founded by Ground Game LA, worked to ensure that encampments across the city had access to soap and homemade hand-washing stations, and they demanded that the city provide to all informal settlements in Los Angeles basic hygiene necessities, including dumpsters, showers, city-funded hand-washing stations, water, vermin abatement, soap, and regular meal delivery. In response to the city's inadequate response to provide services and to protect unhoused residents at the height of the pandemic, the Services Not Sweeps Coalition released COVID-19 guidelines for unhoused Angelinos and demands to the city and county of LA. This demanded that the city halt all programs that prevented unhoused individuals from sheltering in place and start working toward providing adequate housing resources, namely commandeering vacant hotels. The largest demands that Echo Park Lake residents, activists, and organizers advocated for during this time were for city officials to provide sanitary, non-congregate housing options for unhoused residents to safely shelter in place and to completely stop encampment sweeps that required residents to vacate the area. As described in Chapter 4 of this book, Displacement, the Fight for Housing, across the city, activists protested in front of major hotels, demanding that the city commandeer hotels and motels to make thousands of pandemic-induced vacant rooms available to unhoused residents. In early April 2020, Project Room Key was announced by Governor Newsom, but the rollout of the program was slow, with Los Angeles politicians touting thousands of available rooms. Frustration in unhoused communities quickly grew, as they had not seen offers of hotel rooms actually come to fruition. In a campaign led by Echo Park Lake residents via Streetwatch LA, individuals who lived in the park were photographed holding signs that stated, Mayor Garcetti, I will gladly trade this tent for a hotel room. The individual portraits were accompanied by brief statements from several park residents that highlighted their desire to enter their own hotel room and expressed frustration with the way rooms were allocated up to that point. The Social Economy in Practice The mandatory shutdown in response to the COVID-19 pandemic was announced in Los Angeles on March 13, 2020. As the city focused on sheltering in place and staying home, residents at Echo Park Lake began to breathe a little bit easier. In the absence of law enforcement, constant harassment, and threats of displacement, the residents were able to begin building a self-sustaining and vibrant community that had some of the most sophisticated infrastructure and programming ever constructed in an unauthorized settlement in Los Angeles. Here, we provide glimpses of these infrastructures of community. Mutual Aid LA and Power Up In April 2020, Mutual Aid LA, an aid network pioneered by members of Ground Game LA, raised thousands of dollars that allowed volunteers from across the city to provide critical aid to low-income, immunocompromised, and unhoused Angelinos. Homeless outreach teams, led by Ground Game LA co-founder Ashley Bennett, who had been fired from LAHSA for her advocacy of encampment residents, 
began visiting the park multiple times a week to provide food, water, hygiene kits, and other critical survival necessities. Around the same time, Lloyd Nam, an unhoused resident at Echo Park Lake, began hosting a power-up table multiple times a week in partnership with Streetwatch LA. The power-up table was a place for Echo Park Lake residents to charge their phones, use a laptop to sign up for stimulus checks, receive information about their rights, and find out what resources were available to them in the area, such as shower locations. Mutual Aid LA and Power Up became staples in the organizing culture at Echo Park Lake. Both programs brought housed and unhoused community members together on a daily basis, and in the absence of the need to coordinate sweep defense, gave space for people to think creatively about sustainable infrastructures to create in the park to make the lives of residents living there less stressful. By fall 2020, when the Los Angeles Department of Recreation and Parks began shutting off lights on the west side of the park, making the most populous area of the encampment dark and nearly unnavigable at night. Organizers from Ground Game LA and Streetwatch LA sponsored Sunday Night Lights. Park residents and community members came together and hung battery-operated and solar-powered lights throughout the encampment. After lights were installed, attendees took part in a socially distanced potluck, created signs and artwork to display around the park, and listened to music. Indeed, music was an important part of life at Echo Park Lake with encampment resident Dancing David leading Dance Dance Revolution, providing much joy and community. Echo Park Lake Rise Up and Community Jobs Program In February 2020, park residents officially named their community Echo Park Rise Up. In the first months of the group's existence, the group focused on ensuring that food and non-perishable donations were fairly distributed throughout the encampment. They started an Instagram page in hopes of keeping the community at large informed of the happenings at the encampment and to encourage groups to continue to donate supplies and become involved with supporting unhoused residents. By the summer, there were weekly meetings with dozens of encampment members in attendance. With new people entering the encampment on a regular basis, Echo Park Rise Up felt that it was important to create guidelines and a mission statement for the encampment, as well as to establish rules for residents to ensure that the encampment stayed clean, safe, and enjoyable for everyone living there. Echo Park Rise Up worked closely with organizers in Streetwatch LA and Ground Game LA to ensure that everyone at the encampment had what they needed. If someone moved in and needed a tent, they would reach out to organizers to obtain one. If there was conflict in the park, they would de-escalate the situation. In summer 2020, Amen Ahmed, encampment resident and a key figure in Echo Park Rise Up, began envisioning official roles and responsibilities for encampment residents, accompanied by payment for such labor. Many residents had stepped up to share the burden of labor within the encampment and already helped to distribute supplies, clean the showers, and keep the park clean. Ahmed wanted to take the division of labor further and pitched the idea of an official jobs program to other Echo Park Rise Up community members. The group was extremely enthusiastic about the idea and created a basic project plan for an Echo Park Lake jobs program. Mutual Aid LA provided funding for the launch of the program. In August 2020, Ahmed made a video regarding the progress of the Echo Park Lake community and jobs program, recapping the progress the group had made in the weeks prior. A post made to the Echo Park Rise Up Instagram page on August 7, 2020 read, Big things are happening. In the past two weeks, the community here at Echo Park Lake has been able to create two food and donation tent pantries set up four showers at Echo Park and Grant Park, and begin employing residents of the encampment 
to do various jobs in the operation of the encampments. The newly created Unhoused Board of Directors and Homeless Citizen Oversight Committee has been able to begin to offer $10 an hour to 10 residents, eight at Echo Park, two at Grant Park, to do jobs including park security, shower monitoring, donation inventory, donation tent distribution, police and community liaisons. The post included a video of Ahmed touring different areas of the encampment and interviewing members of the job program, who were also members of the newly formed Unhoused Board of Directors at the park. The goal of the Unhoused Board of Directors was for a group of individuals from different areas of the encampment to meet, discuss, and vote on issues that arose in the encampment, such as how to spend funds and how to delegate work. This board would also be the final authority on peacefully removing individuals from the park if they broke the rules of the encampment multiple times. Board directors included Edgar, who was the logistics manager for the encampment and whose idea it was to start the pantry tents and create a regular inventory of donations, Jeffrey and Travis, who spearheaded the security team and conducted daily safety patrols around the park, Lucian, who was the social media manager and news media liaison, and Carmen and Nancy, who led the community kitchen. Echo Park Rise Up also created a GoFundMe with the goal of raising funds to continue the jobs program when the Mutual Aid LA funding ran out. The fundraiser, entitled Echo Park Rise Up, A Vision of Love and Community, included a statement written by Ahmed that outlined the community's vision for the future. It included the following, quote, Imagine a world where there was no bottom, one where your neighbor was your neighbor because they're your neighbor and not because of tax brackets or real estate, a world where good is done for the sake of good, not gain. In the past few months, we, the unhoused community at Echo Park Lake, have been creating the groundwork for this world. Amidst all the drama of LAPD and city harassment, we've been able to come together as one community, both unhoused and housed. What we've discovered is that there really is nothing but love. Separation is an illusion, one that our society unfortunately permeates in everything it does, from class division to hierarchical work structures to goals that benefit only the individual people are either really feeling themselves, hashtag ego, or really feeling down on themselves, and that just isn't our reality, at least not the one that we live every day in the park. For us, there are no barriers and no labels, no class divisions and no power structures. We're simply a community of people trying our best to keep positive and keep going through difficult times. When the mayor cut funding for showers during COVID-19, we didn't just accept it, we built our own showers. When the city decided to then cut our water supply, we didn't just accept that. We rallied community support, and now we have full gallons every day. The point is, we aren't just your typical homeless encampment who accepts second-class citizen treatment, and the city knows it, unquote. The GoFundMe proved successful, and donations from the general public were enough to sustain the community jobs program and provide funds to continue building and expanding the infrastructure at the park for months. At the height of the jobs program, more than 20 members of the encampment were working in designated jobs on a daily basis, with a cap of earnings set at $40 per day per person due to funding constraints. The jobs program helped the encampment build community infrastructure, including showers, a community kitchen and dining area, pantry and storage tents, a medical tent, and a community garden. Though many of the gains of the jobs program were manifested in a physical way, the true importance of the program was providing encampment members with a sense of purpose, responsibility, and belonging. In reminiscing about the days of the jobs program, Ahmed recounts, people actually had a reason to wake up in the morning and do something other than get high. 
A lot of people didn't know what they were living for, but having a job gave them a reason to live. The Shower Program In May 2020, Mayor Garcetti shut down the CARE Shower Program, which was a program that deployed shower trailers to designated areas near major encampments throughout the week, providing unhoused residents with a critical hygiene resource that was extremely difficult to find elsewhere. Due to the pandemic, at least a dozen shower trucks were taken out of commission. The residents at Echo Park Lake were left without access to facilities where they could shower. Gyms were their other critical shower resource, and gyms were closed due to the pandemic. In an incredible display of creativity and resourcefulness, encampment residents discussed building a shower of their own. Organizers in Streetwatch LA and Mutual Aid LA supported the idea and contributed funding to encampment residents to purchase materials. Taking about two weeks to construct, the first community shower consisted of a wood frame mounted in the ground near Ahmed's tent on the west side of the park and shower curtains made of black garbage bags. Residents used refillable five-gallon water jugs as a water supply and relied on community organizations to donate soap and hygiene supplies for shower use on a weekly basis. This first iteration of a community shower held a sign that read, Mayor Garcetti took our showers. In the months that followed the construction of the first shower, demand for shower use became high. The encampment, which was now home to more residents than ever, was spread from the northwest lawn to the far west lawn, near the intersection of Glendale Boulevard and Bellevue Avenue. In July 2020, Father David Innocenti, a retired Catholic priest who had become a close friend of residents, donated two pop-up showers that were stationed in two other sections of the encampment, which increased daily shower access for more residents. The shower program at Echo Park Lake became one of the first programs that allowed residents to hold a job within the encampment. Residents utilizing the showers quickly realized that with such heavy use, showers needed to be cleaned on a regular basis to prevent the growth of mold and bacteria. Further, encampment leaders realized that some people felt safer using the showers when a trusted member of the encampment was present to ensure that residents were safe while showering in a relatively public space. Therefore, each shower had designated residents from their respective area of the park responsible for cleaning the showers on a daily basis and taking shifts monitoring showers to ensure safety. The showers functioned well for months, but they ultimately began breaking down due to exposure to the elements and frequency of use. In November 2020, Ahmed envisioned constructing large, weather-resistant, hot-water luxury showers for the encampment. By this time, the encampment's job program and crowdfunding campaign were well underway, and Ahmed was able to begin construction on the luxury showers with the support of other encampment residents and organizers from local community organizations. The showers were completed in early 2021, a few weeks prior to the police raid and eviction on March 24. The two hot water showers that were erected on the west side of the park near Ahmed's tent were one of the most intensive construction projects completed by encampment residents. The wooden craftsman-style showers stood over seven feet tall and came complete with metal locks on the doors, wooden shelving for hygiene products, and hooks to hang towels and clothing inside the door without them getting wet. Outdoor shower units were provided by Streetwatch LA member Amanda Darui, who equipped each shower with a functioning shower head and a converter that filtered and heated water from the five-gallon jugs. White marble rocks were placed under the wooden bases of the showers to help to control drainage and to make the area look more aesthetically pleasing. Ahmed's goal in creating these showers was to provide people in the encampment with a luxury experience he believed they deserved. Unfortunately, the community at Echo Park Lake didn't get to use these new facilities for long before the police raid, 
On the day that the park was cleared, L.A. sanitation teams broke down and disposed of the structures as if they were pieces of garbage. The Community Garden One of the first ideas that came up in Echo Park Rise Up meetings in early 2020 was that of a community garden. The idea was in conversation for weeks, but without access to proper gardening resources and knowledge, it was tabled while more pressing construction projects began. The desire for a community garden again rose that summer, after the community experienced the loss of two residents to drug-related overdoses. The first was longtime park resident and beloved community member Andrew Kettle, who passed away on June 16, 2020. The second resident was a young woman named Brianna Moore, an 18-year-old who had moved into the encampment with her partner and a few other newcomers just days prior to her death on August 9, 2020. Although encampment residents did not know Moore well, her death shook the community to its core. Encampment residents worked with Moore's partner and community organizers from Ground Game LA and Streetwatch LA to host a memorial in her honor. On August 12, community members covered the ground where her tent had been with white linens and lace, and they set up an altar adorned with photos of smiling Moore and flowers. White roses were hung from tree branches over the altar, and housed and unhoused community members came together that evening to pray and share the brief memories that they had of Moore. A post on the Echo Park Rise Up Instagram page paid tribute to Kettle and Moore and read, quote, Brianna and Andrew are all of us. They are our brothers, our sisters, our sons, and our daughters. Brianna was taken at 18. We all remember that age. Regardless of what we felt at that age, for all of us who are still alive, we know that time is the ultimate healer. Whatever end of the world we felt, time allowed us to heal, unquote. Following the memorial, encampment residents agreed that the location of Moore's tent should remain vacant in her memory. Encampment residents quickly decided that the space should be the location of the community garden that they had envisioned. It felt appropriate that the space be transformed into a garden and kept as a place of beauty and remembrance for Moore. Encampment residents began working with Paige Emery, an organizer with The Future Left, with extensive knowledge and experience in gardening. By late August, the community garden project was well underway, with Emery visiting the park regularly to teach encampment members how to care for the soil and begin planting flowers, herbs, and vegetables. The community garden at Echo Park Lake became a focal point of the community, with passers-by regularly stopping in to ask residents what the garden was and why it was there. The garden became a link between the unhoused community of the park and the broader community, which would not be interested otherwise in the encampment. Media outlets began frequenting the park to report on the progress of the garden and profile Emery and the unhoused residents who she trained in the basics of gardening. The garden was a place of healing, and park residents, activists, and organizers all had the opportunity to plant seeds that Emery continuously brought in and contribute pieces of themselves. The Community Kitchen As the encampment at Echo Park Lake grew, food donations from organizations near and far started arriving on a daily basis. During each major holiday, for example, Father David Innocenti provided catered meals for residents, and the community saw generosity from many others as well. As donations became more regular during the summer months of 2020, community members saw an opportunity to create a functional kitchen and dining area that the encampment could utilize throughout the day. The first iteration of the community kitchen was put together with a few pieces of wood and blue tarps. Chairs and tables, both donated to the encampment and found from the trash in the neighborhood, were set up as a dining area next to the makeshift kitchen. At the height of the jobs program, a majority of the jobs were related to the kitchen area. Roles included community chefs, 
who would work to prepare hot meals for encampment residents throughout the day on several portable propane stoves, food outreach team members who would work to inventory and distribute non-perishable goods to members of the encampment who lived outside of the main encampment areas, and cleanup crew who washed dishes, disposed of trash, and cleaned the kitchen and dining areas after each meal. Near the end of the summer, the encampment had raised enough money both to sustain the jobs program and to support additional work, and Echo Park Rise Up began discussing a kitchen beautification project. This idea comprised a functional kitchen space with running water and ample shelving to store cooking utensils and non-perishable food. They also wanted to improve the dining area to encourage more members of the park to use the space when meals were prepared and to dine together. Construction of the new community kitchen space began in fall 2020 and was completed in early 2021. Streetwatch LA member Amanda Derui led the kitchen build and several kitchen build days with members of the housed and unhoused community to make the project a success. The kitchen and dining area became the center of the community at Echo Park Lake. Everything from daily meals to community meetings were hosted in the area. As a result of the construction, the dining area grew to include several tables with umbrellas and fold-out seating, a number of fold-down serving tables for food, and a lounge with a coffee table and couches. The kitchen and dining area of the encampment was lively with park residents from sunrise to sunset, with people dropping in throughout the day to pick up food and supplies, eat hot meals, and hang out and relax on the comfortable couches. Echo Park Rise Up organizer Cecilia Luis reflected on this accomplishment. Quote, The kitchen felt like the biggest victory, because we had to go through a lot with each other to get that, because it wasn't ego-centered. It wasn't about trying to take ownership. At Echo Park Rise Up, we would sit on the steps and have very long, involved conversations about community projects, what community meant, all of these struggles with substance abuse, which was killing people before our eyes, and what we could do. How we could manage all of this shit that's from systematic neglect. The fact that we were having unhoused and housed people be there on those couches at the community kitchen, sharing space, it was so beautiful, and a total counter to what the city is trying to do with its banishment and fencing." Unquote. Such infrastructure had begun to attract journalists, reporters, bloggers, and curious community members to the park on a daily basis. Encampment residents were interviewed, questioned, and profiled by media outlets large and small, all in awe of what a group of unhoused individuals had been able to accomplish amidst a global pandemic. The success of the jobs program and Echo Park Lake construction projects, and the notoriety that the encampment received, came with the sobering reality that a day of reckoning was coming four park residents from law enforcement and city officials that had long fought for their removal. In the months before the police raid and displacement in March 2021, park residents and community members responded creatively to petty attempts to make life harder for encampment residents. The group had no idea that a large-scale militaristic operation would destroy everything that they had worked so hard to build. Though I guess in these United States, you pretty much have to count on that. Afterward, in the following chapter, we situate the police invasion of March 24 and 25, 2021 in the longer arc of the policing of the park and draw attention to how the Echo Park Lake displacement was brokered by various actors and agencies. In the weeks leading up to the forced eviction, with the threat of violence in the air, several encampment residents had left out of fear. Many others had accepted project room key placements because they were promised that this would be a guaranteed path to stable, permanent housing. With such promises in mind, Streetwatch LA organizers such as Jed Parriott 
and ground game LA organizers such as Ashley Bennett were at the park every day, working with LA HSA outreach workers and service providers to ensure that residents were on the placement lists. However, as shown in previous chapters of this monograph, not all Echo Park Lake residents received such placements, yet others, anticipating the carcerality that accompanied such placements, refused them. In the aftermath of the displacement, they had no place to go. With scores of protesters arrested, a caravan of organizers from Streetwatch LA and Ground Game LA crossed police lines and made their way to the entrance of the park to help the remaining residents. Organizers helped load the personal belongings of residents into vehicles and shuttled them to motels in Echo Park and Hollywood. Park residents Amen Ahmed and David Bush Lilly remained in the park for an additional evening and were arrested the following morning. Organizers were transported from jail to motel rooms immediately after their release. In total, 16 Echo Park Lake residents who had not received or had declined placement in Project Roomkey were temporarily housed in community-funded motel rooms for four to six weeks following the displacement. Organizers from Ground Game LA, Streetwatch LA, and Sela Neighborhood Homeless Coalition worked together to check on residents, deliver meals, and renew the weekly payment for the rooms. When the funding for the motels and meals ran out several weeks later, a majority of the residents made the decision to return to the streets as opposed to Project Roomkey. The willingness of displaced Echo Park Lake residents to accept motel rooms provided by community members, but not from the city, is telling. Throughout the weeks that the community-funded motel program was in place, residents lived peacefully in their rooms, never causing a disturbance or getting into trouble. The rooms provided by community members did not come with curfews or strict program guidelines, but instead with compassion, support, and care. Running the community-funded motel program required a lot of time and effort from organizers working on a volunteer basis, but it truly demonstrates the possibility of running interim housing programs devoid of carceral rules, security, stress and anxiety, and instead based in compassion, care, and support. So now there's a timeline of key events at Echo Park Lake in summary, and there are basically three actors represented by separate lines in this timeline, the community, service providers, and officials. So it begins September 2019, the unhoused community at Echo Park Lake begins to grow. In fall of 2019, and encompassing all three, changing parameters of the Care Plus program triggers citywide encampment suites. Then Thanksgiving 2019, Echo Park Community Center pop-up shelter briefly opens with support from service providers in the community. In early January 10-13, 2020, there's the first eviction notice and activists and residents protest. January 21st to 24, 2020, there's the second eviction notice, and the residents publish, Dear Mitch, Don't Evict Us. There's also a successful blockade. January 28, 2020, there's a meeting with LAPD Commander Palazzolo. In February 2020, the community comes up with the name Echo Park Rise Up. February 3rd, 2020, LAPD and Rangers threaten citations. Meanwhile, the housed community members join the residents in a sleep-in, and LAHSA fires Ashley Bennett. February 4th and 5th, 2020, the Rangers order a major sweep, and the community defends their tents and property. February 12th, so again, this is happening like week to week, very short timeline, there's a successful blockade. February 26th, 2020, Rangers violently arrest Devon Brown during a sweep. March 6th, 2020, temporary emergency congregate shelters announced, 
due to the emerging COVID pandemic. March 13, 2020, Los Angeles announces the safer at home policy. April 2020, Ground Game LA, Streetwatch LA, and residents organize around basic infrastructure. May 2020, the care shower program is shut down. Summer 2020, the community kitchen and community showers are established. June 16, 2020, Andrew Kettle passes away. August 2020, community board and jobs program begin. August 12, 2020, the community garden is established after a memorial at Brianna Moore's tent site. Fall 2020, Department of Parks and Recreation shut off the lights on the west side of the park. In response, the Sunday night light event is founded to create informal infrastructure to keep things lighted. In early 2021, the community kitchen and shower beautification projects, or upgrades, are completed, and then March 24 and 25, 2020, is when the police-led invasion and ensuing cleanup evicts residents and destroys community space. So that's what you get from a, quote, cleanup. What's being cleaned? Poor people. And no, not with community showers. The poor people are considered dirt. That is how this brutal and inhuman system works, a system we must end, a system which trends toward instability, inhumane treatment, and eventual collapse, and it is our historical duty to end this system and to build socialism in its place.